most of you know I, I wrote a book recently. It was released earlier this month. It's, uh, it's this one called Scripture and the Skeptic. We're not selling them in the lobby anymore um, as of today, but you can find it anywhere, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you're looking for books. And I wrote this book for people who are walking a similar journey that I walked, for people who approach the Bible with uh, you know, a lot of uh, apprehension, people who approach the Bible with a lot of doubts. So I wrote this book really to hopefully build on-ramps for you as far as this book is concerned. Some of you have only experienced obstacles, roadblocks, stumbling blocks in your path on the way to this book. But I hope that this book can dispel some of those and, and get you more into this book because I think in this book is life. In this book is freedom and joy. I haven't always felt that way though. I've, <laughs> I've had a love-hate relationship with the Bible. I grew up with it, kind of appreciating it, kind of like a, a fairy tale on steroids, more or less. Like it was just a glorified nursery rhyme when I was a kid. And then I fell out of love with it for many reasons, mostly political and ideological. Stayed out of love with it for 13 years, picking and choosing the parts I like, leaving all the rest until I had that breakthrough moment with Jesus in 2013, where I realized I couldn't take Jesus seriously without taking the Bible seriously, not just some of it, all of it, because Jesus took all of his Bible seriously. A tenth of what he said was quoting the Old Testament. And he never disparaged it. He never contradicted it. He said he came to fulfill it. And so we must reconcile ourselves to the Bible and humble ourselves before it instead of trying to bend the Bible to our will. And so that's, I think, where the magic happens. That's where the good stuff is. And I wanted to write this book to help us get there. Um, so for eight weeks in our messages, we're unpacking the eight questions that I posed in the eight chapters of this book. And last week, we started with the question, isn't the Bible just human? Isn't it only human? And today, I'm going to continue the series with this question. Is the Bible fact or fiction? Are we dealing with historical fact or are we dealing with the stuff of myth? It's a big question. Some of you might remember a few years back, I spent a whole afternoon on the city sidewalks, downtown Houston, asking people whether the Bible is fact or fiction. I had a microphone and a camera following me around. It was an eventful day. And some of you might think, especially if you're watching online from someplace other than Houston, you might expect that most Houstonians, if not all, would say the Bible is fact because you've heard the, the city of Houston is a Bible Belt town. It's not. Inside the Beltway of Houston, is as secular a place as you'll find. I mean, it's not Portland. We don't have like autonomous zones yet, but maybe <laughs> it's a matter of time. I don't know. Um, but, but it's a secular city. Um, it is, uh, it, half the residents of this city moved here from somewhere else, brought their ideologies with them. Many of them came from other countries and brought their worldviews with them. And so, um, you know, what you have here is a, is a real plurality of worldviews. And that was borne out in the responses that I received my question, is the Bible fact or fiction? Uh, I asked about 200 Houstonians that day. And I, I think by my best estimate, 40% or so of those 200 said that the Bible is fact. Another 40%, about the same number, said the Bible's fiction. And then 20% uh, just asked me to go away, pretty much. <laughs> so that was how the day broke down. And that may not be a scientific result, a scientific poll, but what was interesting about that day and continues to be interesting is that so often it's easy to predict what somebody's going to say to a question like that based on their age, based on what they're wearing, based even on what they're driving. Now, this isn't a universal rule, but I've noticed that there's a trend. 
that if uh, a man was driving a pickup truck, he was very, very likely to say the Bible is fact. If a woman was driving a Subaru, she was extremely likely to say the Bible is fiction. I don't know when Subaru became the official brand of atheists everywhere, but it's taken on that, that MO. Any Subaru drivers in the house? All right, we're here for you, okay? Come, come to the altar at the end, I don't know. Um, and, and so the same was true for some other things, like um, what folks were wearing. People wearing uniforms, like police officers, firefighters, janitors, and working-class folks were more likely, not universally so, but more likely to say the Bible's fact, while people wearing lab coats and smocks were more likely to say that it's fiction. Um, younger people were much more likely to say that it's fiction. Much more likely, if they're in their 20s and 30s, to say the Bible's fiction than older people were, most of whom said the Bible's fact. And again, that wasn't a scientific poll, but it's borne out and supported by the most recent data. This is from the Pew Research Center from 2019. 70%, about 70% of Americans over 50 believe in the God of the Bible. In other words, I guess those folks would say the the Bible is mostly fact. Around 40% of Americans under 30, believe the same. That's a huge disparity. So we're witnessing a huge cultural shift that I don't think can just be easily explained away. Another 40 or so percent of Americans under 30 claim to believe in some different form of God, some different higher power, some energy, some intelligence, some vibration in the universe or something. Like they believe in in something else. And around 20% of Americans under 30 are just not sure They're agnostic or they're atheist. And the reason I find this phenomenon so interesting for today's conversation is because if we're talking about the Bible's factuality versus its fiction, like is it it this or that, there can be no denying that there has really never been more historical evidence supporting the factuality of the Bible than we have today. All right, so I wrote about this in this chapter, if you've read it. I wrote about um, the historicity of the Bible being supported by archaeological evidence that is only recently being uncovered. And it wasn't that long ago, for example, that we weren't sure from a historical perspective whether some of these key events in the Bible ever happened, whether some of these key figures ever existed. It wasn't until very recently that we had any evidence outside of the Bible itself, any evidence historically that figures like King Saul existed or King David or the prophet Isaiah or Pontius Pilate. And now we have hard evidence supporting the historical existence of all of those guys, thanks to archaeological digs. It wasn't long ago that we didn't have any evidence that the Hebrew people were ever in Egypt, like the Old Testament says they were. And now we have pretty good evidence suggesting they actually were at about the same time. The Old Testament says that they were there. There wasn't much evidence for so much of what happened in the Old Testament, especially in so so many of these figures until very recently. And now we have all these facts proving that the Bible is historically on point. However, we still have this sort of groundswell of rejection of scripture, right? So we have this groundswell among young Americans who have more reasons than ever 
to believe that the Bible is historically fact, still rejecting it more than any generation ever has. So what that leads me to believe is that this question, is the Bible fact or fiction, isn't even the money question. That's not even the one that that really matters. If it did, the more factual the Bible is proven to be, the more people would believe in it. But the opposite of that is true. We're seeing an inverse correlation. And so what it seems to me is that the real question is something else. It's not just a matter of the Bible's factuality. It's the matter of the Bible's goodness. Or the way that I put it in the, in the chapter, chapter two is, is the Bible true? And the point that I was making is a little bit of a ethereal point is that a story that is factual can still feel false to the human sensibility. The Wolf of Wall Street was a great example of that. I wrote about that in the chapter. This, this, this guy that did whatever he wanted to do and screwed over a bunch of people and stole billions of dollars. And then he spent like, I don't know, 18 months in jail or something, something ridiculous and never paid restitution and got off scot-free. And now he's on CNBC every week as a celebrity guest. That doesn't, Jordan Belfort's story is historically factual, but it's false. But we have stories that are true, And by true, I mean noble, good, virtuous, right? And and true to the human experience. And so the, the real question people have about the Bible is, is it true? Does it tell a story about a God who is good? And this generation that's walking away from the Bible is doing so because all they've heard about it is that it's full of violence, misogyny, infanticide, genocide, Uh, It is homophobic, xenophobic, it is pro-slavery, all these things they've heard make them believe that whether or not it's factually true, it's morally false. And the God that it presents to us is not worthy of worship because he is not good. You've heard the adage, no one will care. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. When it comes to the Bible, no one cares whether it's fact if the story it tells is false. And so, is the story the Bible tells true? Is it good? Is it virtuous? Is it holy? Is it worthy? These are the questions that actually matter more than just, is the Bible fact or fiction? Thomas Paine put it this way in his book, Common Sense. Thomas Paine said or wrote, it is from the Bible that man has learned cruelty, rape, and murder. For the belief of a cruel God makes a cruel man. Leave this quote up for a second. I want to unpack this a little. The second part of that, absolutely true, by the way. The original T-Pain had it right. The second part of this, okay? So the belief in a cruel God makes a cruel man, absolutely. I've always said you become like that which you worship. Over time, you become a reflection of whoever you're worshiping. Obviously, if you worship a cruel God, you're going to become cruel. However, the first part of the sentence is absolute ridiculousness. It is, it is patently false that from the Bible, man learned things like cruelty. The Bible's only been around for a couple thousand years. People have been killing each other for 200,000 years. It doesn't add up. The numbers don't check out. That's like saying the the 20th century was bloody and a disaster because of Y2K. Something that happened at the very, very end, which was scary. It was was bad. Giovanna and I withdrew the only $200 that we had from the bank because we thought life was not going to go on as we knew it, right? But... Was that bad? You can't blame Y2K for World War I retroactively. 
And so it's ridiculous to say that the Bible is the reason people learned cruelty or the, the people learned murder or rape from the Bible. The Bible reflects those things, but those things pre-existed scripture, all right? But what we have here is an example of a brilliant man. Thomas Paine is way smarter than me, smarter than most of y'all probably, no offense, smart guy. So why did he believe that about the Bible? And why do so many smart people believe the same today, that the Bible is, even if it's factually true, the Bible is morally false? I think there's a couple of reasons. And the first that we have to own up to, Christians, is that we have not, we have not done a very good job of offering the Bible good PR. We have not been good ambassadors of the Bible or the, or the God represented in the Bible. Every time we run our mouths as Christians, Every time we put politics in front of people, every time we say something hateful or offensive without thinking about the God we're representing, we present more reasons for people to walk away, more reasons for people to think the book we hold dear is false. Even if it's factually true, it is morally false, all right? That's the first reason, and I think we just have to own that and realize if you're a Christian, you represent the kingdom of God even on Facebook, on Twitter, at work, and on the roads. I see churches, it just blows my mind. I see churches outfitting their members with bumper stickers with the church logo on it. And I'm just thinking, is that really doing the kingdom of God any good? It just seems like every time a skeptic gets cut off in traffic by somebody with a, you know, I don't know, Lakewood church sticker on the back of their car or something, like, doesn't it make them less likely they'll ever go to church? Am I overthinking this? I don't know. You people are never gonna get bumper stickers with the Story Church logo on, I promise you. I've seen you drive. I don't wanna, I don't wanna do harm, you know? But, but that's kind of, a, a, I think that's kind of a truism in our culture that Christians, it, it's so sad to me that people are no longer surprised to witness bad Christian behavior. I just think that's where we're at. And so people think, I'm trying to be a good person. Christians are not good people. I'm not a Christian. Now, that's only part of it. I think it's a smaller part of the problem. A bigger part of the problem is just the human heart. And this is true for all of us. When some people look at the Bible, they see a book full of rules, restrictions, regulations, and we do not like to be regulated. We have an aversion. Uh, something in our spirit is repulsed by the idea of being told what to do, especially when it comes to stuff we like to do. When the Bible tells us not to do those things, it's a problem for us because we think we know better, right? So uh, we put out a call this week for, uh, for people to tell us, maybe God podcast listeners to tell us what problems they've had with the Bible in the past. And we got some great answers. And you're gonna hear some of those answers in a future episode of the Maybe God podcast. But I, I noticed a trend that as thoughtful as these responses were, like 70% of them, had to do not with like real textual issues in the Bible, but had to do with rules, uh, especially around two things, strangely, rules around sex and alcohol. And, and essentially the message that I got was, we, the Bible's nice, but I don't want it to tell me what to do with my body or with my bottle. And, and I, I wish it would just stay out of my, my business <laughs> a little bit. And, and I think there's a problem of submission and surrender there that's, that's pretty deep. 
And it, it actually can lead people. If some people come to the fork in the road and they go, I can do what I want with my body or the bottle or whatever. And the bottle is a symbol of some, a bigger thing, right? And then, and then I can surrender to God over here. I can submit myself to the Bible and deny myself over here. And for many, the choice is easy. They're going this way. And that's obvious and clear whenever you look at the way people my age and younger, so I'm 42, right? People my age and younger or around my age and younger, we've been raised from the moment we were born with this belief, it's so ingrained in us, that the most important thing in your life is to be true to yourself. And and what does it mean when we say be true to yourself? It means your desires are inherently good. The things you want, you owe it to yourself to go after it. Parks and rec, treat yourself, all that stuff. Like it's deeply theological. And it's in us, and, and we think that is, a, a, you know, obviously good. I'm not so sure. It obviously contradicts what the Bible says, for example. And, and in her book, uh, Strange Rights, uh, which is a book, the subtitle is um, <laughs> New Religions for a Godless World, which is a great subtitle, but she's examining our culture. People are leaving the church. What are they going to? They're not becoming atheists. They're curating new religions. They're creating their own spiritualities, Right? They're pulling from this and this and this and this, whatever works for them. And she summarized the worldview of many young adult Americans today this way. She, she said, um, this is not her talking for herself. This is her summarizing the worldview of our culture. I am the only truth I know. My emotions are God-given. They tell me what to do and how to live. To be my truest self, I, I should follow my instincts. My body and my gut know more than my mind. This repressive Christian society has held me back from becoming my best self. There is no objective right or wrong. Different people and different societies have different moral obligations. Now, if that's the worldview you're steeped in and you've accepted, you can understand why the Bible would be difficult to accept as true, right? I mean, if anything, the Bible is the arch enemy of truth for you if you are the greatest guide for truth because the Bible is going to contradict you. The Bible is going to say, hey, not all your appetites are good. Not all your instincts are godly. In fact, sometimes chasing every instinct is the fastest road to hell. The Bible is going to say, deny yourself. Lay down your life. Go without sometimes out of devotion to God. And you can understand how that can be deeply troubling to people who are their own deity. So in response to that, I've heard skeptics say, that's fine, okay. But what about your Bible? Just look at that book you're so proud of and you'll find all kinds of horrible things, right? Obviously, you'll find genocide, infanticide, war, violence. You'll find misogyny. You'll find examples like polygamy, how can you say this book is good or any better than this worldview I'm trying to hold on to over here as a secular person? Hey, if that's where you're at, I want to know you're right. That stuff is there in the Bible. But I also want to challenge you to read a little more deeply and to ask yourself if just because something appears on the pages of the Bible, if that means that must be God's ideal or God's vision for human life. There's a great um, preacher named Phillips Brooks who put it this way. He said, 
the Bible is like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, then he sees the worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, then he doesn't see anything but that. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond. This is, I think, a really helpful analogy for Scripture and understanding the Bible as truth. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, Jesus was teaching his followers, and he was interrupted by a lawyer, of all people. A lawyer interrupted Jesus and tried to trip him up. And this is how the story unfolds in in Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. The lawyer said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. What's, What's the Bible say, right? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Just go back a second. This is important. The lawyer knew Jesus was right but he still wanted to justify himself over Jesus. And I see something in us here. If we're honest with ourselves, we know even secular people often will admit Jesus, awesome. Jesus is great. Jesus is right. If you believe that about Jesus, you gotta believe it about all of Jesus. (laughs) Like when he said he's God and when he rose from the dead and all that stuff. Like if Jesus is right, You reckon yourself to him, not the other way around. But the lawyer wanted to reckon Jesus to himself. He wanted to justify himself over Jesus. Now let's keep going. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, this is a familiar story, but listen for something new here, okay? A man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down. So this, the presumption is that the man was Jewish and these people, the first two that come are Jews. So a Jewish priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man pass by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan as he traveled came to where the man was. All right, let me pause for a second. Everybody heard this in vacation Bible school. You've heard preachers say it a thousand times. But there's somebody here today who's never heard this, so I'm gonna say it. Samaritans and Jews, there was no love lost between them. They hated each other. Jews thought Samaritans were just half-breed nobodies. Jews thought Samaritans were wannabe Jews, more or less, and that they didn't really belong with the people of God. There was um, all kinds of infighting. Just before Jesus came to the earth, the Samaritans, some Samaritan outlaws had desecrated the Jewish temple in Jerusalem with the bones of dead Samaritans, just scattering dead bones all over the temple. And that's kind of an example of the animosity. So Jesus inserts a Samaritan into this story, not just as a role player, but as the hero. The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. We're going to come back to that word in a second. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which are a day's wage each, 
and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So we see examples of investment, real cost to the Samaritan and inconvenience. He put the man on his own animal and he walked while the man got a ride. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? This is a brilliant twist. It's obvious if you've read it, you know the lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, who in the world is lucky enough to be loved by me? And Jesus turns the question around. You see what he did? He said, who was a neighbor to the man? Who was broken? Who was downtrodden? Who was helpless? Who was a neighbor to him? And so what he's doing here is he's saying, the point isn't to look around you and go, who's in uh, proximity of me? Who is like me? Who is in my neighborhood? Who agrees with me? You are my neighbor and I will love you because you are like me. The answer to Jesus's question clearly, uh, the answer to the lawyer's question is the, the neighbor is whoever's in your path. You're called to be a neighbor to whoever's in your path. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Samaritan. It doesn't matter if they're Democrat or Republican. I mean, the point of the story is the man was left for dead, unconscious. He couldn't even answer any questions. He was stripped naked. He didn't have his yarmulke on. He didn't have anything on to identify himself. And there's no indication that the Samaritan goes up to him and goes, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Before he helped him. Do you have anything in return? Will you use my money to buy alcohol? None of that. All he did was act as a neighbor. He loved the one in front of him. And, and this, uh, this is essentially how the story ends. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, the lawyer wanted, because he was a lawyer kind of hung up on semantics, he wanted to know the bare minimum. What's the least I have to do to be saved? <laughs> Which there's like been books written on, best-selling Christian books. This is the, the, the title of one of them was like, what is the least you have to do to be saved? And I'm like, that, that title's a problem. Like the question itself implies a heart problem because you're looking for the bare minimum. <laughs> I'll just, I won't do any more than that, but I just want to know what it takes to get into heaven. So I'm good. But sometimes I think Christians look at it exactly that way. We look at the Bible instead of through it. We look at it instead of through it. And when you look at the Bible, you see just words on pages, pages full of rules, restrictions, do this, not that, etc. And we try to get what's important to us and we try to leave all the rest. The Bible's not meant to be read that way. The Bible is meant to be looked through. And when you look through the Bible, especially through the lens of Jesus through the Bible, everything comes into focus. And here's what I think is so honestly sad and astounding about this cultural moment that we're in. One of the corollary realities of the statistics I shared earlier about young Americans is that young Americans are more likely to be politically left of center. And I think most of the people I know and love who struggle mightily with the Bible, who won't even bring it up in my presence because they don't wanna hear about this book, they can't tolerate the Bible because they believe the Bible can't tolerate them and their views and their politics and their ideas. Most of these people are, if I could speak frankly, bleeding heart, liberal people. 
who I love, but who for some reason in some way have gotten the message that the Bible is not for them because the people wielding the Bible against them have sent that message and they've received it loud and clear. But it's stunning to me how confused people are about the Bible because they've just looked at it and they've looked at the people holding it instead of looking through it themselves. I don't know how someone maintains a a feminist worldview over the long haul of your life, how you support such a worldview without a belief in a God who instituted equal rights, dignity, power between the sexes from the beginning. When you look through the Bible, instead of just at it, what you'll find in the very first chapter of the very first book is a God who was the OG feminist. Not an angry political force of a feminist, but a a God who put things in motion in antiquity before anyone believed men and women were equal. And God said in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, they're made in my image, male and female in my image. And don't ever get it twisted that men and women are of different worth, different value, different power, different dignity. No, they're made in my image. And throughout the whole book, God continuously reminds people of this reality. To the point in Galatians 3.28, the apostle Paul, everyone calls him a misogynist. The apostle Paul is saying there's no longer male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. I don't know how someone who spends their life being a tree-hugging environmentalist, loving the earth, misses the fact that the verse after God made male and female in God's image, setting them as equals, he then set them both over creation, the things that he has made as stewards to look after it, to care for it. Not only was God the OG feminist, God was the OG environmentalist as well. He set us as stewards over creation to care for it. I mean, to call yourself a Christian environmentalist is almost, it is absolutely uh, redundant. To be a Christian is to care about the things God has made. And most of all, especially to care about the people God made in God's own image. And sometimes Christians, I think, have sent a message, or at least it's a message the world, the secular world has heard loud and clear, is that to care about the oppressed, the, the refugee, the immigrant, the poor, to care about women, to care about orphans, is optional when it comes to Christianity. And the Bible tells a much different, much truer story that to care is essential. It's Christianity 101. Look, that's why. That's why Jesus inserted the Samaritan into this story. I think. I don't think it was just for shock value. Ooh, the bad guys, the good guy. Wow, what a twist. No, I think Jesus inserted the Samaritan into the story because Samaritans, according to Jews, were not bound by the the Bible law. Samaritans didn't have to obey because the Bible said so. This Samaritan didn't obey so that he gets to go to heaven one day. This Samaritan did what was right. Jesus told us why, because he was moved with pity. Because he was moved by compassion. And that word compassion is used to describe the emotional state of Jesus more often than any other emotion throughout the gospels. He was moved with compassion. And so to be moved with compassion, when you see a world in need, a broken world, when you see the hungry, when you see the homeless, when you see people that are beaten down by life, when you see the oppressed, when you see the refugee, to be moved with compassion is to love with the heart of Jesus 
And you do that because you've been worshiping Jesus and over time you've become more like him. So your heart becomes more like his. And Jesus makes it clear that this isn't optional for Christians in Matthew 25. When he says, one day, on the last day, here's how I'm going to know whether you belong with me in heaven. Did you feed the hungry? Did you visit the prisoners? Did you care for the sick? Did you welcome the stranger? That's how I know if you're with me. And I know that sounds a lot like the stuff I'm always preaching against. It's not about what you do. It's about God's grace and receiving it. And I'm not saying you're saved by your works. Jesus never said you're saved by your works. He just said that when you're saved, you can't help but feel compassion for the poor. When you've been saved, you can't help but love those in need. You can't help but feel pity toward those who are lost. Why? Because once you're truly saved by Jesus, you look back and you see yourself poor. And you see how pitiable you were. And you see how lost you were. And you see how many reasons you gave Jesus to not go out of his way and come save you. And you see that Jesus never once said, I wonder if it's worth it. I wonder if they'll receive me. I wonder if they'll take advantage of me. I wonder if they'll buy alcohol with the money I give them. He never did that with us. He came knowing that most of us would take advantage of his benevolence most of the time. And that he looked upon us with compassion anyway. When you love Jesus, that's what you do as well. And if you've been living in this world and you've gotten this message on the news and what you've seen in life that, that Christians are the bad guys and don't really care about the oppressed, I'm sorry you've been around those Christians. I know how confusing that can be. I would encourage you, if you're one of these young adults I'm describing today, to go to the source material and find for yourself the God who set men and women as equals from the beginning, the God who said, take care of my creation from the beginning, the God who said, you know, the, 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 the poor and oppressed, the captive will go free, the last shall be first, the first shall be last. This is the God you've been looking for. This is the true story the Bible tells. The Bible is mostly fact, I believe. It's got some fiction mixed in. The Good Samaritan's a great example. Jesus made that story up. Y'all get that, right? It's got a lot of fact, got a little fiction. What really matters is that the Bible is true. It's a true story about a God that truly loves you and truly set the world to rights from the beginning. And in spite of our sin and the ways we've messed everything up, he intends to bring it back, to restore it to its original condition. He wants us to live to that end. He wants us to take care of one another. He wants us to be neighbors to whoever he puts in front of us. And that's how we know the love of God lives in our hearts, when our hearts beat and love more like Jesus. This is the life that God wants for us. This is why I wrote this book. So I don't want you to be deceived by the lies you've perceived in our culture. I want you to be set free by the truth of this book and the God it reveals. Would you pray with me? Lord, in spite of our politics and our ideologies and our opinions and our past and our pain and our scars, our disagreements with people wielding Bibles against us, in spite of all of that, Lord, I pray for the courage for each person listening in right now in person or online to search the scriptures for themselves. Instead of just looking at the Bible, Lord, I pray that we would learn to look through it 
to see your why. Why those rules are there. Why you did what you did. Why you came in the form of Jesus. Why you love us so, Lord. I, I, I pray we would have the courage to look through your word. For those who are deep in doubt and really dubious about Christians or Republicans or conservatives or whatever the culture has told them equates to Christianity, Lord, I pray for wisdom and humility. We would see not only words on the page, but we would see your heart, especially when we see Jesus. We want to worship him and nothing less. As everything else falls short and leads astray, when we worship Jesus, our hearts become more like his full of compassion for the poor, the forgotten, the oppressed. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us when we were poor, forgotten, and oppressed. You are good and merciful. We pray in your name. Amen.